Welcome to the Transformational Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Anam. My mission is to help you lead more effectively and be an agent of positive change in times of disruption. On this podcast, we interview practitioners and leadership experts and have coaching exercises that you can apply immediately to your work challenges. Together, we learn how to achieve success and create workplaces in a world that work better for all. Well, it's my absolute pleasure today to introduce to our podcast audience, Lee Mars and Justin Zorn. They are the authors of the book, Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And today's conversation is actually about the power of silence in the midst of disruption. So their book, Golden, makes the case that there is a simple prerequisite to solving the big challenges that we faced in the 21st century, from distraction to polarization to environmental degradation, getting beyond the noise and reclaiming the presence of silence in our lives is what matters. So I'll share a little bit about Justin and Lee, as you guys then can come on. Justin has served as both a meditation teacher and a senior policymaker in the U.S. Congress. And I'm sure you have some stories about that, Justin. He's a Harvard and Oxford trained specialist in the economics and psychology of well-being. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's wonderful to be with you. It's awesome to have you. And then Justin's co-author is Lee Mars. Lee is a leadership and collaboration consultant with organizations, including Harvard, Google, and IKEA. And she has led multi-year programs teaching uh, experimental mindsets to teams at NASA. And so Lee, I loved the um, start of the book. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a bit of a meditation itself. And I would love to hear you speak the first few words. So chapter one, an invitation. What's the deepest silence you've ever known? You can trust the first memory that comes to you. No need to overthink it. As you remember the experience, See if you can settle into it. Recall where you are. What's happening around you. And who, if anyone, is present. See if you can summon the atmosphere. The quality of light. The mood in the air. The feeling in your body. Is it quiet to the ears? Or is it the kind of silence that comes when no person or thing is laying claim on your attention? Is it quiet in your nerves? Or is it the kind of silence that lives deeper still? Like when the turbulent waters of internal chatter suddenly part, revealing a clear path forward. Take a moment to consider what might sound like a strange question. Is the silence simply the absence of noise? Or is it also a presence unto itself? Wow. Beautiful reading. 
Lovely. Thank you. And I'm now feeling tempted to answer that question. Oh, we would so yeah. love that, Hannah. <laughs> Please do, Hannah. That would make us feel Yeah. Great. Yeah. And you said, what's the first memory that comes? And for me, the first memory that came was the first time that my daughter, who was a little baby, smiled at me. And it seemed like time just stood still. And it was just me and my daughter and that smile. And there was so much joy in my heart. Yeah, that's the first memory. How about you, Lee? Well, it's not a surprise to me that you point to those moments. And that's when we spoke with people, all different types of people in the book, neuroscientists, politicians, artists, poets, a man incarcerated on death row. So many people, they'll point to these really important moments, births, deaths, moments of awe, moments that aren't necessarily auditorily quiet. And for me, it was a moment postpartum where I was struggling with some very severe postpartum madness, frankly, with lots of voices in my head. And when I was finally asked, or when I was asked this question, had I ever lost my witness? Had I ever lost touch with sort of a connection with reality? I suddenly, I paused and I, it was like all those voices went aside and I got complete clarity and certainty that yes, I had, but only one time. And I felt in that moment, a holding of something like being held by something. And it felt very silent, very still, very quiet. And it was so reassuring to me in this moment, I can't even tell you, that silence just came to me and comforted me. And I knew then that everything would be okay, that my relationship with my daughter would be fine. She would be fine. I would be fine. My marriage would be fine. All these things were so, you know, I'd, I'd be okay. I'd, I'd regain my sanity. It was all going to be okay. And it was silence that brought me that certainty, that clarity, and that ability to see. So. Mm. For me, that's what came to mind. Mm. Justin, what about you? Mm, thank you. Hannah, I love how you describe this about time standing still when your baby smiled at you. Because when we first started exploring this concept of silence, this power of silence, we wrote an article for Harvard Business Review that resonated with folks. And it was really just about the idea of auditory silence, the importance of getting beyond the, the literal noise of our lives. And as we explored the meaning of silence more and more, we realized it was this deep emotional state. It was this deep psychological state, even spiritual state that people described. As Lee mentioned, you know, some of these kinds of experiences that people describe as their deepest silence, that phenomenon of time standing still in the very deepest silence, where nothing's making claims on your consciousness. It's like there's an expansion that happens. And some of the neuroscientists we interviewed for this book described the deepest silence as this place of, you know, not just a little bit of spaciousness in the consciousness, but expansion in our attention. Hmm. 
And, you know, for me, there's a lot of different examples I could point to, you know, times being deep in the ocean and times being in snowy mountaintops. But the time I feel most in my being, the time we write about the book is a time when my wife and I, we had just had twins and we were in the hospital, stuck there for about three weeks, separated from our older daughter in the newborn intensive care unit. Thankfully, they came healthy. They were early, so we had to stick around there for a while. And it was right when COVID was beginning. And we were just bombarded with the noise of the ICU, the newborn ICU, all of these alarm bells and monitors ringing. In the book, we write about not just auditory noise, but informational noise and internal noise. And we were just bombarded with the informational noise of reading about COVID and what this new virus could mean, and the internal noise of anxiousness, of anxiety, of fear. And in that context, my wife stepped away for a moment to take care of something, and one of the nurses asked me if I wanted to hold both twin babies on my chest, skin to skin, and and I did, and felt our heartbeats almost kind of synchronize and our breathing kind of synchronized. And we were still in this super noisy environment. And there was still all this fear and anxiety of everything going on. But in that moment, it was like in the reading Lee shared, where it's like the turbulent waters of internal chatter suddenly part, revealing a clear path forward. It was like all that noise, all that rumination parted. And it was like we could just walk forward into new life, these twins. Hmm. It's like a deep silence amidst noise, internal silence. Yeah. And so it's so interesting that what we're pointing to and what so many of the neuroscientists that you talked about are pointing to is a neuroemotional state you know, a state of consciousness, I guess, which is deeply silent and through which there is access to enormous forms of clarity right in the midst of all the noise that we are surrounded by. And you, we each spoke about sensory experience, right? That in some ways that while the noise of the chatter, the mental chatter goes away, there is a heightened awareness of sensory experience that comes to the forefront in the midst of that silence. And I'm curious about, we shared personal meaningful examples. I'm curious about what are examples of this in our workplaces? Because it feels like our workplaces are so full of complexity and ambiguity and disruption. And we're going from one meeting to the other in half hour or hour slots with barely a time to go to the bathroom or drink water. How do we find access to silence to help? solve some of these most critical issues that you talk about in the book. 
it's so hard to point to an example because they are so scarce in the workplace these days, at least. But the models exist and we've we've found some examples of it and we get into some frameworks for how to reclaim this power of silence in the workplace. But you asked about, you know, an example of this. And what comes to mind first for me is a story we tell in the book. And we also just wrote a new piece for Harvard Business Review on how to build a culture that honors quiet time. And we talk about how in 1787, when the delegates were writing the U.S. Constitution, they had a giant mound of dirt placed outside the convention hall where they were working because they wanted a kind of pristine, quiet environment where they could do deep work together. I'm sure they did a lot of arguing and there was a lot of imperfections to the whole situation, certainly. But it was an idea. It was a kind of example of an organization that honored quiet attention. Mm. And they had very important work to do. And we fast forward some 200 plus years to, you know, you mentioned before, I probably have some stories to tell about teaching mindfulness in the U.S. Congress. You know, and I also worked there as a legislative director. And the main thing I have to tell Hannah beyond all those experiences is just the noise of it, that there was no appreciation for the auditory quiet, TVs blasting everywhere, people yelling, arguing, hollering, you know, email alerts and text alerts, this and that constant. And also the informational noise and also the internal noise. There was no appreciation as a culture for quiet. Hmm. It was the polar opposite of that constitutional convention, deep work kind of framework. In the book, at what it means to create an office culture, a workplace culture that honors quiet attention in terms of the auditory, in terms of the informational, and even in terms of people's cognitive space for internal quiet. So we have some examples of what that means tangibly, but it really starts with something that feels to us super ironic which is we have to have conversations about quiet. We have to talk about our needs for quiet. As an executive coach, I get to have really intimate conversations with my clients where they share their inner noise, the stories that create behaviors, right? The inner stories, the gremlins, right? Yeah. In our head that create the stories that change outward behaviors, they impact uh, organizational cultures. And I'm really interested in, for those individuals, what are some ways for them to work with, that inner noise, or perhaps access silence in the midst of all of that? It's such an important question. So we get into a lot of specific ideas, but but really the essence is this. Notice the noise and tune into silence. Recognize that the noise is real in our lives. The auditory noise, the informational noise, the internal noise the noise in our ears, the noise on our screens, the noise in our heads, recognize that it's real and appreciate silence. And as we think about it, there's three basic steps to the process that underlie all the different strategies we bring forth in the book. And one is pay attention 
to all these forms of auditory, informational, and internal disruption, interference that arise and appear in your life and study consciously how to navigate them. The second step is perceive the small pockets of peace that live amidst all the sound and stimuli of your day. Find the pockets of quiet. Seek these spaces, savor them. Can you go as deeply as you possibly can into these little moments of silence when they arise, even if they're only for a minute or even if they're only for a few seconds? How deeply can you go into these little pockets of silence that can reset our nervous system and bring us clarity and renewal? And then the third step we talk about is how to cultivate spaces of profound silence, what we sometimes in the book call rapturous silence from time to time. And this is the silence that isn't just the absence of noise, but the kind of silence like when you're deep in nature or you've taken time to turn off your phone for the whole day and really think about what you care about in quiet, the kind of silence that isn't just an absence, but a presence. So that's kind of the the overall framework I can offer for how to do this. And we can get into lots of much more specific, much more tangible suggestions. Lee, what would you add to that? Yeah, I think when we're doing that mitigating, you know, noticing the noise and tuning into those pockets of silence and then seeking out deeper silence, we're also connecting to our signals. So for example, the noise, how do we know it's noise? How is it affecting us? Is there a tightness in the jaw, in the shoulders, in the diaphragm? Do we notice our thinking take a certain type of character? Like it's a lot of future thinking. I'm leaning, almost leaning into the future. (laughs) What are the signals that we are in that noise? Or are we completely, when we're overwhelmed with noise, some of us can, can have more like different emotions. I could be very irritable when I find myself in the noise. I get short, a shorter fuse. That's not my normal character. So we know ourselves, right? How do we know that we're in the noise so that we can be tuning into that? And then when we tune into silence, what are the signals that we're doing that? Ah, like, are we breathing really, really with our full lung capacity? Do we see more? Do we enjoy more? You know, are we in better relationship with those around us? What are the signals? So for each of us to tune in to our signals of too much noise and of actually finding those pockets of silence and then deeper silence when we make our way there. Mm, Beautiful, beautiful. Are there any specific practices to access deep presence that you talk about, deep silence? and? I have a hunch that just like any other muscle, the more you access or work the muscle, uh, I'd be curious about what your the neuroscience folks are saying about that. But the more that we have the ability to access um, states of deep presence, that it becomes easier to access them even in short spurts in the middle of our day. And I'm curious to see if there are any practices for those listening in the podcast to say, here's something that takes 10 minutes that you can do for yourself every day. Because we all have busy lives. And I know for me, my mindfulness practice is really wobbly. And so the question is, how can we work with what we have without giving it up altogether? Totally. 
I love your framing of that, Hannah, because we've had wobbly meditation practices at many, many times in our lives, very wobbly, in fact. And one of the reasons we wrote this book was to be a kind of non-meditator's guide to getting beyond the noise or the lapsed meditator's guide to getting beyond the noise and how we can get beyond beating ourselves up over not meditating enough or questions like, am I doing this right? Am I, am I meditating enough to give people license to simply seek the silence that will bring them more equilibrium and clarity in their lives? Because everyone knows what that silence is. So there was a, a team of researchers at, at Duke University Medical School some years ago that tested the effects of different types of sounds on the brains of mice. And they, it was a very long and complicated experiment that involved anechoic soundless chambers. And they tested various forms of sound, classical music, a Mozart sonata, white noise, mice pup sounds. And they wanted to see what type of auditory stimulus would stimulate the most growth of neurons in the hippocampus, which is the region of the brain associated with memory. And the researchers found that it was silence, far and away, that was the most helpful. And what the lead researcher wrote is that the act of trying to hear in silence activates the brain and promotes neural development. And we found this so interesting because this was speaking generally about the brains of mammals. And it aligns really well with an ancient practice from India that some folks might be familiar with called Nada Yoga, which is the yoga of sound or sometimes called the yoga of listening to the sound of silence. Sometimes Nada Yoga is about listening to the sound we hear when we don't listen to anything in particular. When we simply step outside or step into a quiet room and just listen. And maybe we hear the ringing in our own ears. Maybe we hear nothing at all. But can you simply step outside without any fancy meditation practice or breathing technique? Simply listen. And this practice of listening, of paying attention to the auditory soundscape, listening in the silence, You know, you could say, based on this Duke Medical School study, it has some power to amplify, heal, enhance our brains, you might even say. But on the other hand, we can just say subjectively that in the process of simply listening, we could tune in to the vibration we're at in our lives. We could tune into the stress level. We could tune into the level of interference. And by listening deeply, we can find a way to equilibrate that. And really what you're, I mean, what I sense you're talking about, Justin, is it's about paying attention when you talk about listening. Uh, I think in the book you call it pristine attention to something. And I am super curious about, and maybe you can address this, Lee, is collective silence Mm. and what is available. I am reminded of perhaps the Quakers. I think it's the Quakers, Mm -hmm. right? That come together and sit in silence until somebody absolutely feels moved Mm -hmm. to say something. And so what could be available 
if we started our meetings with just a moment of silence to allow ourselves to arrive and sharpen our attention. I love that. So we did spend a lot of time with Quakers, one in particular, Rob Lippincott, who was an executive, brought a lot of silence into his work as an executive with PBS and other organizations um, that he had learned as a birthright Quaker. So that's a great idea is just to start to even just let, you know, before we even jump in to the meeting to just, in a sense, let the, the dust from the road settle, you know, just let that road dust settle and then get started. Another thing I like to do is to have people connect to the importance, the why we're here, what we're here to do and why it matters, mm. even for just a moment, and then set off into the agenda. Mm. And just that changing that, you know, turning our attention, like let, you know, if it's like that hurried way, we all got here to get in here on time to let that fall away, to then turn our pristine attention to the purpose, the why we're here together, why it matters, and then start in. And another thing we learned from Rob was that in times of great conflict, what happens in Quaker meetings, these meetings that are for business They'll a clerk will actually call for a moment of silence just to kind of get everybody to settle down. Maybe there's a little polarity going on, you know, push-pull, or sort of people feel a little bit um, entrenched in their opinions. So he or she will call for a moment of silence and they'll sink into the silence together. You know, they're well practiced at this, of course. And what Rob described is that for him, he'll get out of that sort of like my position, my opinion, my, you know, I'm immovable. He'll soften, the space will open. And then someone else may say exactly what he was thinking or hoping, you know, the high, you know, but even better. And he'll feel like, yes, like we're getting somewhere. Yes, this is it. So silence has this way of transforming the space really opening possibilities, expanding the space like Justin was pointing us towards so that, and actually like the neuroscientist Justin Brewer was suggesting, there's an expansion in silence available. And so we can actually create some space for these conversations to to move ahead and not be so rigid and polarized. We're hopeful about that. Yeah. Go ahead, Justin. And I love, I love Hannah that you brought up this topic of the Quakers because it's so rich and deep, this connection to silence as Lee was just describing. And this word that they really brought forward for us is discernment. You know, that the power of silence is for the power of discernment. The work that Lee described of calling for silence within meetings is often called the work of threshing, separating the wheat from the chaff. And silence has this power to separate the wheat from the chaff. True silence, this this enables the kind of presence that you've been talking about, Hannah, the discernment and the sympathetic understanding of humanity and nature. And it's an antidote to all that distortion that drives self-centeredness and apathy. It can be an antidote to that. Mm. So we look at how the Quakers, this religion that honors silence, They originated the phrase, for example, speak truth to power in the 1950s around some nuclear disarmament activism. So we explore how silence can actually be a tool for standing up for what's right in a community, in a society, but also in a workplace, in an office, you know, whether that's around an ethical issue 
or simply standing up for something you know to be true and wanting to point it out in a meeting. Mm. It's so interesting that you bring that up because what's coming up for me is the power of speaking from silence as you just talked about it. Mm -hmm. There is a deep resonance that has a way of landing with people that if it comes from that place of deep peace and presence that you're talking about, that it is worth more than us shouting with loudspeakers. Yeah. (laughs) It has a way of landing with people that is absolutely magical and very counterintuitive. Absolutely. We, we look to Gandhi for, as an example, Gandhi as a leader, incredible leader, he took every Monday in silence. He did not speak on Mondays. He did go to meetings. He did attend conferences. He listened deeply, but he chose not to speak. Every Tuesday, when he would emerge from that day of silence, his words, the people around him would say, have such clarity and such discernment, such you know, d- d- direction, so clear that they were breathtaking, these speeches on Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. So I, while many of us are not you know, going to be prone to take a whole day of silence every week, we do invite the readers into just like taking a pause from the constant pressure of having to think of what to say, being reactive, responsive, always you know, with a comeback. What if we just relax that reflex and just notice, tune in, listen more deeply, be more receptive, and not be caught up in that responsiveness? Mm-hmm. What's possible for us as leaders, as team members, and all this? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder, and I keep coming back to this notion of access to collective intelligence and building alignment, because I think so much of the Issues and challenges that we're trying to navigate are collective challenges, whether it's climate that you spoke about, social justice issues, issues around how do we navigate hybrid work. Many of these issues are sort of novel situations that we're trying to navigate. And I wonder if there is any either anecdotes or any research that you can share around what is available when we can take space in our coming together and deepen silence or I talk about it as presence and what becomes available in alignment and finding novel solutions and creativity from that place of silence. Mm. Yeah, you really get to the essence of why we wrote this book, which was really just looking at the question, like, what are we going to do about this crazy world? How can we possibly bring more sanity? Because we were running up against the limitations of the frameworks we had been working with. And the the kind of intuition that led to us writing this book was the kind of sense that the problems facing humanity might not be solved with more thinking or talking. You know, of all these serious personal and communal challenges, like the ones you just mentioned, Hannah, the challenges, the solutions might be found elsewhere in the open space beyond the mental stuff, between the words, between the thoughts, in the open space. I could give a very quick 
personal example of this. And then I'd love to hear from Lee on a example that she's done with taking toxic chemicals out of supply chains, because she's been really able to bring this out in a beautiful way. But I can tell you an example of when I was making the move, my wife and I were making the move from Washington, D.C. to Santa Fe, New Mexico. You know, we knew we wanted to move out into the country and leave our really overly stressful jobs behind, but still find a way to still contribute to the work we cared about. I was feeling overwhelmed by noise at that time. And the plan for coming up with a new consulting practice, a new business wasn't coming to me. How to make this jump into a new lifestyle of remote work, which was a few years before COVID when remote work was a little bit less acceptable. And I realized I was overthinking it in the sense of I was thinking about it from DC, surrounded by sound and stimulus, and I was burnt out by the degree of intense thinking I was doing, by the degree of informational inputs, the amount I was reading, the amount of conversations I was having, the auditory noise of my surroundings. I went out to a really simple rustic cabin that a friend of mine had out in out in the western part of Virginia. And I spent about a day and a half mostly just lying down on a wooden deck listening to the birds, listening to the sound of the breeze in the air without any of these frameworks for why silence matters, but simply tuning into the sounds of nature. No Wi-Fi, no real conversations to have. And it was through that, that almost what felt magically, a whole download of a whole work plan, of a whole organizational framework just came to me. Something I'd been looking for for months. And I'm not saying that all the work of thinking and planning and sense data, you know, organizing and conversations, that that wasn't valuable because it primed things in an important way. But at the same time, the real insight came by creating the space for the intuition to flow. And it was something that I didn't really previously recognize. Mm. Yeah. And that's actually a beautiful segue to what we do with the chemists who that I work with who are concerned about toxic chemicals in our products and in our environment. So we've been gathering these coalitions of chemists, academics, studying this di different toxic chemicals, government entities that regulate those chemicals, businesses that care to do the right thing and don't want those chemicals in their thing, or, or also as purchasers don't want to purchase those things, but don't even know to, where to begin. And then NGOs, uh, nonprofits that advocate around these. So we're getting those groups of people together and going out into the redwoods to be with this question of what are we going to do with these large, these tens of thousands of largely unregulated chemicals in our products? How can we possibly address this issue, which is, really been going on for a very long time. The burden of proof is to prove that they're harmful, not that they're safe. So then when one of these you know, NGOs gets one of those chemicals banned, very quickly it gets replaced by a regrettable substitute, something very, very similar and maybe just as bad or worse. So this is the problem. This is that intractable problem that they're struggling with. How do we break through? Well, our motto for that is to slow down. There isn't much time slow down, get quiet, I'd add. There isn't much time, which is really what Justin did on his own intuition. So we get out into the redwoods and we do look at the data and you know do these kind of 
condensed presentations, but we also take time in nature. We also go out into the redwoods and listen to the redwoods, if you will. We also read poetry and, you know, we don't have Wi-Fi. We kind of get into a different stream of consciousness together. And in that setting, this group, this coalition came up with a strategy that was truly breakthrough to group and cluster these tens of thousands of chemicals by families, by chemical composition and, and how they were also formed, and then to bring that forward into legislation. And now that is common, the way to approach these chemicals now by classes, by six classes. And it's a bipartisan thing at this point in time. So we're really getting to address these chemicals in a whole different way, simply because we went out to the woods for the last decade, we've been doing this work and dropped in and looked at this problem with a different set of eyes and consciousness and attention. Well, that is so beautiful. It reminds me of the conversation. Our last podcast was with um, Bob Anderson. I think this is a a good place to stop here because what you are describing in the forms of case studies and, and personal anecdotes is what he and I spoke about, which is the access to intuition, the access to new forms of intelligence that are available to us when we are in these expansive states, whether we get them through our connection with nature or our connection to each other uh, or our connection to silence. Mm. So I so appreciate each of you in the work that you are doing to bring more silence and to bring the potency of access to new forms of intelligence that we already have Uh, and to change the paradigm around how we're going to navigate some of these complex challenges that we collectively need to navigate. So deep bow to each of you in this work that you're doing and um, wish you so much luck. Thank you so much, Hannah. So good to be with you. That's really wonderful to be with you and love the way you just put that about accessing the deep intelligence that's already within us. Mm-hmm. Silence is a prerequisite for doing that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for getting this message so deeply and for helping us share it. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Hannah Anam. Please rate, comment, and share our podcasts with those you care about. Be the leader who helps others grow and thrive in times of disruption. You can visit our website at www.transformleaders.tv. There, you'll find other great tools to grow your leadership and be a force for good in these times. Until the next time, my friends.